Hello, and welcome to another episode of no, Media Laura, Literate. No, stop, stop. What? No, what? you're way too high. It has to bring it down. It's hello, and welcome hello. to another hello. 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 Great. Okay. Now say There's it like you're sultry, underneath yeah. a comforter in but, your closet. Hello, everybody, uh, and welcome to another episode of Media Literate. Welcome to season two. You may notice that we sound a little bit different. Things are, we've switched it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So for season two, we decided to switch up the format of the show. Instead of uh, hearing me coming to you from the lo-fi jazz void, at the beginning of every episode. (laughs) It's a little less NPR. It's a Mm -hmm. little more live. And um, I'm going to be one of your permanent hosts along. Oh, I'm Kim Henry, by the way. Hi. Going great so far with the live recording thing. Oh yeah, we're so live, (laughs) baby. All right. Hello and welcome to Media Literate. My name's Kim Henry and this is Laura Broman. Oh, so, what did you want me to say? I said I wanted you to say this is Laura. Um, this is Laura Broman. I wasn't sure whether you wanted me to say media literate or look, I'm new at this, okay? <laughs> this well, is Laura so Broman. Every episode, Laura and I are gonna be your co-hosts, and we mm-hmm. will improve which each with each successive episode for That's sure. I hope at least. Yeah, ideally. <laughs> but we're gonna hold down the fort as your co-hosts every week and bring on a guest or mm-hmm. scholar, friend, mm-hmm. classmate, mm-hmm. lover. Okay, yeah. probably not that. Uh, I got excited. Um, and they will bring Who knows with what's them- going to happen? Hey, media <laughs> studies, man. A passionate <laughs> field. We're going to have the guests on every week and they'll bring with them the topic. We're really excited mm-hmm. for this week's topic, actually. It's one that's very close to uh, my heart and Laura's as well. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, we are going to open every episode of season two uh, with an exercise in growth, I would say. Indeed. Yes. You may recall that the premiere episode of Media Literate, season one, baby, uh, was about the film canon and about... (laughs) Our particular brand of imposter syndrome, having watched not nearly enough of those movies. So Laura and I, every episode, we're going to switch off who does this. Um, We're going to watch a film from the canon Mm -hmm. and report back. Is it worth it? Was it good? Who's to say? And like, Mm -hmm. would you say, like, I feel like we're doing more than just one canon. It's sort of like a variety of things. Yeah, basically any and all of the movies that we uh, are embarrassed to say we haven't seen yet, we're going to try to like tick those off. And then finally, finally we'll be like, you know, scholars or whatever. That's the goal. (laughs) This week, we actually watched uh, the movie together, but Mm -hmm. I did not want to put in the time to write up a whole little book report like Laura Mm -hmm. did. Um, So she is going to discuss for you the the relative cultural value of reservoir dogs written yes. and directed by Quentin Tarantino
So we also, <clears throat> I should mention, watched it with our friend Charlotte, who was also there in the first episode and has seen more movies than us. She uh, fell asleep about five minutes in, which was the right idea. She knew what she was doing there. Yeah, um, she, she, had, she made a good call there. Yeah, okay, so I'm gonna try to be as charitable as possible so as not to come right out of the gate with a with an unpopular opinion. Uh, <laughs> so Reservoir Dogs is uh, about like the events immediately uh, leading up to and following a, a botched heist. That's essentially what it's about. Um, and I'm just gonna go down my list of things, starting with the things that I liked the most. Now, Laura, and, we are keeping yes. this tight. You have, oh, oh God. Okay. I want to say seven okay. minutes is the cap. Okay. 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 <sighs> All right. Let me know when I have one minute left. Okay. And I'll just okay, skip right to the end. I will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number one thing I liked most, I thought the concept was cool. You know, he was operating on a very low budget and so he couldn't execute a heist um, like in on a film. He had to just work around it. And I think that's, that's a pretty cool idea. One thing that we were, when we were watching it, we talked about was that it was probably like would have been better in a lot of ways as a play since it's just taking place in this one um, sparsely furnished warehouse mostly. Mm -hmm. And then there's mm -hmm. some flashbacks that are very filmy, but neither of us are fans of when like films are basically plays that have a camera in front of them. And so that was yeah. a little, wait, I, I know. I, I will out myself like. yes. as, um, you, you're rushing now and I feel like ah, I've, I've okay. done this to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, yeah, whatever. But I will, I will out myself. Um, yes. I, should lose my black card over this, but I compared uh, Reservoir Dogs to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That was early on. That was early on in watching it. Yes, was it like, was. Uh, it was before. It was we'll, before we'll get to it. We'll Quentin get to it. showed his ass, but yeah. uh, very much so. Uh, I apologize to August Wilson. It's it's more about the adaptation of your plays mm -hmm. to the screen than right. the plays themselves. You're great. In that Augie, they're mostly just film. Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson, yeah. <laughs> Terribly um, <all> sorry. Right. <laughs> Point number two, what do you like? Point number two, uh, the acting from Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel was very, very good. Tim Roth especially did a great mm -hmm. job, emotional center sort of, I'm mm -hmm. Harvey, uh, Harvey Keitel. Can't also, say the first name anymore. Um, gay vibes, right? Yeah, very there, gay vibes. That oh, was, yeah. That was that was a positive. Um, the script sort of, if you like Tarantino doing his funny, clever monologues, you like it. Uh, I don't, and so I didn't. Um, that's really all I have to say about that. It, it's very uh, quippy and isn't that fun. Um, I will say the best line of the movie, which uh, we did, we made note of, oh, was yeah. um, your fucking Beretta. They believe every fucking word because you're super cool which, you know, he really stuck the landing there. I love that. Oh um, yeah, that Quentin Tarantino either says that to himself in the mirror every morning or like <laughs> as he is is like jacking himself off. I was gonna say, it's what he like, says right before he comes. <laughs> You're super cool. Okay, uh, this is a academic <laughs> podcast. Um, Continue. So uh, the lighting was bad. It looked bad. And mm -hmm. I kept on telling myself watching it, well, it's a very low budget film. Mm -hmm. But I looked it up. It has, adjusting for inflation, I think a slightly bigger budget than like Moonlight, which looked beautiful. So that's mm -hmm. not a fucking excuse, Q. Um, okay, next, uh, the <laughs> title. 
So I have to get into this because it is, I think, one of the things that defines Tarantino as a filmmaker, which was, which is that nothing fucking means anything. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the reservoir dogs, we thought it had something to do with a reservoir. Yeah. Cause like LA dogs. there's reservoirs yes, in here. And maybe the yeah. men are dogs. Uh, yeah. They're whatever. the dogs of the reservoir. Sure. Uh, no, actually the title comes from when Quentin miss or uh, heard somebody mishear uh, the film Au Voir Les Enfants as reservoir dogs. So the film, um, Au Voir Les Enfants, uh-huh. he was working at like the video rental store he worked at and somebody was like, oh, that movie Reservoir Dogs, right? And Quentin was like, no, it's Au Voir Les Enfants. And just decided to take that and make it and the, his, the movie, the title to his movie, uh-huh. despite that having nothing to do with the movie <laughs> itself. It is just a, just a fucking reference for no reason at all, which is exactly oh Quentin God. Tarantino's whole thing. Oh my God. And by the way, speaking of things that are <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's whole thing and he needs to chill out about, there is the lingering question on all of our minds, hopefully, after watching this movie, which is why do they say the N-word so much? That is a question that I think we as a society have just cognitively like disassociated from because mm-hmm. like, there is it is the question that like sticks it is the like why there is it is not there is no fucking reason it is it is so just there yeah and it's not just the n-word it's like it's not just it's the it's the the like specter of blackness and black Mm -hmm. masculinity is hanging over every goddamn well i mean i didn't notice it until fucking um steve buscemi rat face hottie also (laughs) what we should mention is that when laura and i started watching this movie charlotte was still awake at this point and we were shocked by all these actors who we've mostly only seen post 2000 and let's say seven um (laughs) who like they're mostly older men we were like oh they're actually like really handsome harvey kai tells a hottie why does steve buscemi i believe it was rat faced hottie is what we went with rat faced hottie yeah Yeah, except (laughs) All of them immediately after we said these words would yeah. then just drop an absurd amount, like not just the N word, but just like specifically referencing black men. Like yes. you are yeah. acting like a this. Do you want to be a this? And it's, it's just like, what? there's no black people in the scene. There's <laughs> one single black man in this movie and they don't say it when he's on screen. Right. So they're just constantly referencing the existence of black people. And, but the only way they know how to do that is just through absurd aggression. And it's yeah. deeply upsetting. It is, it was a, quite a trip to go from, we spent the first, there's a, what I assume to be an iconic scene, except we weren't really paying attention. Oh yeah, to no, we talked through the whole thing. Where they're talking about like tipping culture in Madonna or some shit. We yeah. were talking about whether we should change from parting our hair in the middle to on the side or like <laughs> vice versa. Oh, and yeah. also noticing that these actors are kind of hot. And then we were like, oh, maybe we should actually concentrate on this movie. It could be really good. And then and right as soon after as that, we did, Steve Buscemi drops the N word on the floor in front of us. And also, like, is this what you fucking all- wanted? hard r like hard I, like the hardest hard very hard tarantino mother <laughs> fucker like my god it is something that we need to talk about as a society as a white supremacist society why <laughs> did we let this happen okay so it's what? definitely i haven't been timing this as well as i should be but you you're you're down to one minute Okay. Um, Well, those are my main points. I just wanted, also there's, um, especially that one scene where they're sitting in the car um, talking about Pam Greer um, and like 
like kind of it was just or just like the the like, idea of black women in general yeah yeah, yeah. again that four white men in a car worse yeah. than that i imagine one white man at his desk <laughs> in his shitty la apartment having just done i don't yeah. fucking know and yeah. being like you know what black women let me get into this by himself writes for white men also with mm-hmm. no black people present just mm-hmm. go off mm-hmm. about the concept of black women and yeah. what they're like compared to black or to white women and yeah. black men and i've truly never seen anything so offensive sorry i know this is your thing i was really <laughs> mad no, about it it was it also made me so upset that he went on like the fact that he drops pam greer's name in that scene and then goes on to make Jackie Brown a movie I've tried to watch on three separate occasions but never gotten through (laughs) because it's kind of boring but the fact that like he doesn't deserve to have ever occupied the same room as Jackie Brown because all that scene told to me was that he has a weird fetish Mm -hmm. and definitely doesn't Mm. understand how to like interact with like the concept of black women let alone a real life iconic black woman Pam Greer how dare he go on to make a movie with her unbelievable the fact that you could think that he could do that is like the whole thing and this is this is the thing too like this was one scene in the movie but I think it's what the movie is truly about like this isn't yes on the one level it's Quentin Tarantino, as he described it, is this is my Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. This is his remake of that because all of his movies are a fucking remake of something. But on a different level, it is the movie is a vehicle, uh, an early vehicle for young Tarantino to express his fixation with blackness and black women. That is what the movie is fundamentally about, is this one scene. Um, Mm -hmm. And like to like to talk about like anything else without addressing that just feels um wrong uh so that would be uh that would be my take do I recommend it no (laughs) I do not recommend it (laughs) gosh are you sure if you if you liked if you liked Pulp Fiction you'll like Reservoir Dogs I Uh, guess that's what I can say (laughs) I if if it were physically possible for me to like peel whatever neurons still contain the memories of the that scene Mm -hmm. from my brain if I could like have them surgically removed I would potentially say that I I prefer Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction like I enjoyed the movie Reservoir Dogs more than I enjoyed the movie Pulp Fiction Um, I agree with that I'm not I I said I was gonna be charitable to it and then it oh yeah Um, well, so it's been around the amount of time that we said it would be. So I feel like we should make a hard pivot to the rest of the episode. How do you feel about that? Segway? Yes. So, uh, Segway. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Welcome back, y'all, to Media Literate. We are officially joined by our first guest of season two, Colton Elsie. Um, Colton is here, as I mentioned earlier, to talk about something very, 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 very important to Laura and I. Um, yes. yes. Allegory, monsters as allegory in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. 
Yes. Um, we've been, <laughs> have we done a Buffy episode yet, Laura? And Colton, no. other producer. We've talked about it. We've talked constantly we've talked a about, lot it. about it. <laughs> Every single meeting was just like, so what if we did the which Buffy boyfriend's best episode? <laughs> yeah. Best Buffy boyfriend episode? <laughs> yeah. And we could never justify yes. it because um, yeah. we're trying was to be like, cool. Secretly in the background, our entire cohort really talks about Buffy and Twilight. And that's that's all mm-hmm. that we do. So Honestly, yeah. we might talk about Buffy more than we talk about Twilight. Hope Kevin's sure. doing all right. I'm sure love- he's doing great, you know? He seemed like he was doing really great. Just listening to Supermassive Black Hole by Muse on repeat. <laughs> um, okay, so Colton, let's just, um, the the listeners already know you, but um, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, just in case they forgot. Yeah, so I'm Colton. Uh, I'm a member of the USC cohort here with everybody. Uh, going on to our second year, we yes. are second year cohort now. It's a little yeah. terrifying, but we're fine. Yep. We're fine with it. We're all at, uh, the university of Southern there. California mm-hmm. studying yeah. film. Uh-huh. And, uh, I really like monsters and monster films. And I think they're a lot of fun. So what's yeah. your favorite monster? Oh yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> great. Wait, what's your favorite like allegory monster? Like this monster really means this. I really like, uh, this is like a standalone, but I really like Super 8, the like 2011 oh. film. Because... I didn't watch that one, mm-hmm. but that's not surprising <laughs> to, to anybody. I also haven't seen it, so I don't have more <laughs> commentary. What's, it, what's the monster from that? I thought it was like a clown. It's like an alien Okay. Alien, alien thing. clown. But, but it's all about the dad and the son mm-hmm. like fixing their relationship. And so, mm-hmm. like watching it now as an adult, oh, I'm like, oh, oh you it's like not the, about the monster. You're into that. You like yeah, yeah, yeah. dad yeah. movies. Yeah, like father son <laughs> relationships. I think are cool on film. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good um, one. <laughs> what's yours, Laura? Favorite it's like monster allegory? The thing? vampire. Have I guess. No, I mean- <laughs> I oh, were you asking me? I thought this was like, why the fuck would Kim ask me this question? Which yeah, no, I, I know. But better remember that we're recording a podcast. Yeah, other I people I do. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. so another hard pivot. We're talking about allegory and Buffy and monsters and whatnot, particularly because Colton wrote a paper last semester about monster as allegory and also the sort of tv as a cultural forum thing that we talked a lot about in usc uh ctcs 587 television theory um uh, shout out yeah. to Tara. <laughs> um yeah so so talk to us a little bit about the i like we're all pretty familiar with monsters as allegory um mm-hmm. you know vampires sexy it's too much sex hell yeah it's, hell yeah yeah you know too much sex king kong is real fucking racist like that's mm-hmm. that's we're afraid of yeah. that kind of thing so like we're we're pretty familiar with the idea of monsters as allegory but how does that relate to the concept of tv as a cultural forum and buffy yeah so that's that's a great question so when we talk about a cultural forum this comes from uh two scholars um Paul Newcomb, no, now I'm going to have to look up their actual names. Newcomb and Hirsch. Well, we yeah, we always and Hirsch. call them that, but Horace, nobody Horace knows. Newcomb and Paul Hirsch are their first names. But So exactly. they wrote a paper in like the 80s talking about how TV functioned as a cultural forum. And I'm just going to read a quote because they're going to say it better than I did. And what they said is they said, television fulfills what other scholars refer to as the bardic fun- function in contemporary societies. 
In its role as a central cultural medium, it presents a multiplicity of meanings rather than a monolithic dominant point of view. And then this is good, it says, it often focuses on our most prevalent concerns and our deepest dilemmas. So mm -hmm. they, this whole paper where they studied TV, especially TV from the 50s, and they talk about how the stories within TV were an opportunity for ideas about traditional and non-traditional lifestyles or gender roles or all of those things to be discussed on TV. And then people were watching it in their homes and it gave an opportunity for families to approach these issues. So they said TV therefore functions as a, a forum or a platform for cultural discussion. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, I think we can all recognize of a lot to unpack politically there uh, oh, yeah. because right now, especially TV is sort of written toward, um, toward whatever uh, narrow cast audience um, and their ideological perspective. So there's a lot of oh, yeah. like, TV is like, no, it's not a cultural form. This is it. It's much more didactic at this point. Um, but I think they would probably say that there is some benefit to that cultural forum. Like, mm -hmm. how would you kind of square that circle of like, yeah, I mean, we could have a cultural forum, but sometimes some things are right and some things are wrong or which is what everybody thinks. But I don't think they yeah. all think the same ones yeah. are right and wrong as I do. <laughs> no, I, I think that's good. So they their paper actually says that because, and again, they're writing about in the eighties about TV from the fifties. So like a very different time period than us. And so that, so they're looking at these things. And one thing that they point out is they say, these narratives sometimes don't need to answer the question. They don't need to have a specific right or wrong, but the fact that they are approaching an idea allows it to be discussed. So they talk about a TV show called Father Knows Best, where one of the characters uh, is the daughter character. And she tries to go out for a very strong traditional at the time period male role she wants to be an engineer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she ends up not being an engineer and they said that's okay because the fact that she went through this experience got everybody talking about it and got the family thinking about it and then got viewers to think about it so tv doesn't have to always answer a specific question or even be right the fact that it gets these ideas out there and that people are watching it in their home with their family or their friends mm -hmm. it's kind of the whole point so that's actually really that's a great segue wow um, yeah i'm sorry uh but no that bringing up the idea of like a question that we oh is that what that sounds like <laughs> um <laughs> we certainly won't be able to answer this question but i would like to sort of frame our discussion around yeah. the question so we can have a little cultural forum right here and now oh, um, wow. yeah i know i it was a, it was kind of a segue like we did it um and now we're just but... gonna stop the show to talk about it <laughs> That's meta humor, uh, Laura. It means it's an elevated Sorry, form I'm of comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the cultural for the question that I want us to address is why do we use monsters in allegory specifically? Like we can talk about like how do monsters function in horror? Like, yeah, as yeah. allegorically, that that would be the answer to that. But why do we use monsters and like in the particular um, cultural products that we're talking about Buffy in particular but also mm -hmm. monsters of you know they're hot right now everybody's yeah. a vampire hell yeah yeah <laughs> they're hell, monsters are yeah. hot right now everyone's a vampire both of those things I are statements I stand, stand by. by them mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. we're gonna make a t-shirt that just says that everybody's a vampire, everyone's a vampire. um so yeah, so, yeah so how, how do we I... approach this yeah yeah okay so I think something something we're thinking about is that 
even though these are well understood ideas by us, like mm-hmm. we've been through film school, we're graduates in film school. And so a lot of people, these like ideas like, oh, a monster stands in for something else is still new to them and like weird to them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they don't even get it explicitly. They just get it implicitly. I don't but know. I, I think- feel like people got that Dracula was pretty horny, right? Right? Well, I want to jump in here with some... Here's the thing about Dracula is that the, that the meaning changes so much, right? Because mm-hmm. if you read it from a perspective of like like uh, late 18, 1800s in London, uh-huh. it yeah. reads as this really... Sorry to interrupt you, Colin. Uh, as like that's, a, that's very, what it reads like it reads as a sorry yeah, to sorry interrupt you Colton but it's, it's like a you know this very Famous. xenophobic allegory because it's about mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. this uh really this this easterner he's from eastern Europe and he comes in and mm-hmm. he's like literally comes in and he's corrupting the women of London in like a a like it, with blood right specifically uh-huh. with blood and so there's these like pan this panic over like think of the women think of the children and like Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. all these things Mm -hmm. and but you can also at the same time imagine some repressed victorian woman in her sphere of domesticity reading reading the part where like all of the dracula babes what are they actually <laughs> called dracula's brides like mm. a- attacking the keanu reeves character going like oh oh wow this is this is scandalous and so it you can backfires. imagine that there is a, a a a a position to even back then to like um read it with a sort of um what's the word uh like read it oppositionally, sort of oppositionally. yeah mm-hmm. that sort of thing um mm-hmm. anyway so but it's interesting how much sort of that at some point we decided that dracula was actually sexy in a cool fun way and not sexy in a scary inappropriate foreign yeah. way um, <laughs> or like you mm-hmm. know or like so a, yeah like a um how was not the word lustful but he was like unbridled like it was bad and they were trying to say mm-hmm. this yeah. type of behavior is going to mm-hmm. corrupt right. everybody and you know kill yeah, us so what people were like hell yeah <laughs> corrupt <laughs> away Ooh, well, and that's me dracula is that <laughs> like the title of this then... episode corrupt me dracula <laughs> mm-hmm. i would like to say i you said that we all went through film school uh, and are now graduates well, that's of film true school. Yeah. um but that's not true i i was an english major i did not go to film Correct. school and so i would like to bring to this conversation my dracula knowledge real quick we'll get back on track i promise mm-hmm. um a lot of literary historians and theorists believe that Bram Stoker actually based Dracula's character uh-huh. in part on Walt Whitman, with whom he had a correspondence, and oh. it was sexy. Bram Stoker was a fanboy. He was like, he, in his first letters to Walt Whitman, he actually describes himself physically. He's like, this is what I look like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is, and they like, I think they might have met once at one conference for a little bit, but the idea of Dracula as this sort of like, all-consuming very like embodied into like blood and also like the a creature of the night it's kind of like this mirror verse walt whitman like hell yeah yeah it's it's pretty hot instead of our like horny transcendental hippie grandpa of american poetry (laughs) it's like dark like looming grandpa of america american poetry leaves of grass yeah So yeah, so maybe that authorial intent was just like completely like yeah. So this is the yeah, cultural so, form we're dealing with. Thank you uh-huh. guys. That was our Dracula tangent. We're back, baby. So yeah, so Laura talks about this right. So in the time period, like contextually, Dracula was a 
physical fictional representation of a cultural fear, mm-hmm. right? That like they were trying to get this point across or at least in some context it was there. So oftentimes our stories are stronger when they're used as metaphors than like an explicit didactic dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. So if you tell something as a parable, it holds more weight than if you just say, be a good person, right? And this is like religious sages do this, art artists do this, it happens all the time. And so in this context, monsters are used often to stand in for something because we have connotations with them. So we talk about like vampires as sexuality or queer sexuality or like this, all these other things coming in. The crucible, right, is really, witch hunts are really about the red scare. Um, mm-hmm. All werewolves oftentimes stand in for like unbridled male aggression or male mm-hmm. desire, right? Um, this is important because representation matters. So what we're showing on the screen, what we're teaching people is important for them to, uh, what they take from it. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes we make stories about monsters because we're afraid of things in the world or we have fears that are like in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so we make a story about a monster and that's our way for characters in the film to conquer the monster, fight against it is a way for us to work through an anxiety that we have. Mm-hmm. The dynamic that you're setting up here though, right, is sort of twofold depending on the type of allegory we're looking at. Yeah. So on the one hand where you have the crucible, oh, it's an allegory for the Red Scare, or um, you have, I, I always go to King Kong because it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. America was really afraid of like black men taking their white women and climbing up their tall buildings and what have you right so there's the we are going to use this monster as as an allegory for our fears and then conquer it and then there's this sort of pivot at a certain point yeah uh, Mm -hmm. especially in modern times and i'm going to use this as a pivot segue a to buffy where a lot of these monsters become metaphors but not necessarily for like this antagonism that we Mm -hmm. have to Mm -hmm conquer or defeat but um as like an underrepresented group right yeah and so can can you go into that a little bit i'll also i'll give us a little intro of buffy uh (laughs) eventually you're on the right point so we're in almost like a second wave or a third wave of like Mm -hmm. monsters in I did quotes for our listeners. Mm-hmm. You can't see Woo, me. Woo, podcasts, audio media. <laughs> but yeah, so monsters were like originally these bad things and they stood in for bad stuff. But now as a society, we've understood that a monster is a bad thing. And so now they can use a monster to come in and we think it's a bad thing. It turns out to be a good thing. So it's like mm-hmm. we're in the post postmodern stage of reusing things. Is this the simulacrum? Yeah. Yes. We, <laughs> we made it. And one show that does that a lot is Buffy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I'll take it away from here. Uh, as we've said on multiple occasions, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a very corny, very like targeted at teen girls, deeply important piece of cultural content. Yes. Um, yes. Laura's taking that like personally. It is, yeah, no, I, no, the I was, that I Laura was, was like, making why I started that sentence. Where does she, that sentence end? She was really, I had to, I had to move it along quickly because I got a little bit worried. Um, yeah, no, Buffy's why I'm here. It's the whole reason why I decided yeah. I mm-hmm. wanted to study and and make films and TV. And it's mm-hmm. the, I believe the same thing for Laura. And now yeah. Colton, we've like brought you into the Buffy family. Yes. And I think we could say retroactively at this point, yeah. Buffy's why you're here too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like decided to stay in school because of season three of Buffy. It kept mm-hmm. me here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's one of the good ones um so 
despite the fact that Joss Whedon has uh, taken a, his, his reputation has taken a hit in a big way yep. for a lot of very good reasons recently and it has mm-hmm. several times we just forget about it every three years yeah. but we didn't cannot take Buffy from us mm-hmm. uh, and he also cannot take away the 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 power of some of these metaphors and the allegorical monster um, mm-hmm. Buffy is not the first to do it but my goodness they really leaned in didn't they the monster <laughs> of the week was just every single teen like trauma there's yeah. the the perfect example is the one in season one where like the girl she feels invisible and then she turns she, invisible. She turns invisible. Ah! <laughs> I love that one. Like if, if you could be more on the nose, I like it would be out of the screen. <laughs> Joss Whedon just if you like could be more on the nose your it'd screen be the and episode. like the snoot. It's like more hey, treat nose. people nicely. <laughs> More on the nose is the episode where they drink beer and then turn into cavemen. Like That's she drinks true. beer with yeah. frat boys and then they literally become cavemen, which who doesn't yeah. love that one? Yeah. Um, I, I would say more on the nose might be the episode that we're about to talk about. That's if true. I'm being yeah. honest, yeah. Colton picked this episode as a really great example of the cultural commentary um, and the use of monsters as allegory to create a cultural forum, which is really great. I'm just sad that the first episode of Buffy that I've seen in like a few years, thank you, Colton, is from season four, one of the rockier. It's a tough one. (laughs) The writing is like really all over the place on this one. Um, But yeah, go into the episode that we're going to talk about and the, the monsters and allegories that are, totally subtle and really uh, uh really like super subtle but then not it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like joss yeah. is in the background he comes out in front of the camera and kind of winks and then goes back away you know it's like an unconventional did relationship did you get it yeah <laughs> for those okay, so of you who are not in this uh chat with us right now we all just winked <laughs> it was the timing was actually excellent was good perfect. job guys in this episode of buffy it's season four called new moon rising Mm-hmm. Oz, who is Willow's ex-boyfriend, who's also a werewolf, comes back. He like left a few episodes ago. He comes back and is trying to get back with Willow. But at the same time, Willow has developed feelings for Tara, mm-hmm. who became her friend. Oz finds out that Willow is now gay. And so he has kind of this whole conflict with that, the whole episode. And as that's going on, Riley learns that Oz and Willow dated and Riley like kind of has this whole dilemma about the fact that Willow was with someone who was a werewolf and mm-hmm. he's totally against that. And so it's this whole dynamic. So that's mm-hmm. basically what we're going to talk about with this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Laura, you mentioned at some point earlier about like why that particular pairing really is, is the thing that like kind of pings Buffy for you. Like the pure, oh, one of your yeah, favorite parts the, of that. Like, the kind of like, Uh, metaphor and then the thing that the metaphor is a metaphor for For. wow amazing (laughs) sentence but those two things put side by side um Mm -hmm. like get out does that really well too and like other there's certain other like horror things you know the the allegory and the thing the allegory represents that's a better way to phrase it oh yeah also the (laughs) syllable four is not in it so you don't have to it's a metaphor for four um yeah the allegory of what it represents side by side in the episode Mm -hmm. that that does work really well right so we have like um riley dealing with the shock of finding out oz is a werewolf at the same time as buffy dealing with the shock of finding out willow's gay that's sort of the Mm -hmm. two parallel um 
Thanks. So why did you, what was it specifically about this episode besides like the more obvious, like the monster, it's an allegory, Willow's gay, <laughs> yada, yada. Um, like what about that really spoke to you as like the, and as an example of a cultural forum? Yeah. So Buffy's really interesting because the entire show of Buffy does, it kind of does the same, just like Laura was mentioning, it goes through mm-hmm. this trend. So Buffy takes like these commonly vilified monsters, werewolves, witches, demons, and it connects these monsters to humans, human mm-hmm. characters that we as an audience have connected with throughout the show. Mm-hmm. And then it takes those, uh, the other characters around them and kind of goes through a whole narrative of allowing them to learn what these monsters are mm-hmm. and accept them as human beings. And by doing that, it kind of teaches the audience, oh, we should learn and accept these people who are different as people. Mm-hmm. And so it, kind of, it does this whole thing the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. And Buffy does that repeatedly, this episode specifically. Mm-hmm. When we were first talking about this, I was really struggling with the idea because I was like, yeah, this is going to be fun to talk about, but also how deep can we really go with like, how do monsters operate as an allegory? Well, you see, they're an allegory, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But one thing that you mentioned earlier that really made me start thinking is that it is different from the way that like Laura was talking about how Dracula represented actually Mm -hmm. it was this very xenophobic, very like, Mm -hmm. we're worried about this thing right now, as opposed to Buffy and other like, I mean, the other big example would be X-Men, which is doing it for a slightly longer time where it's like, ah, yeah. So the allegory is, yes, it's still monstrous or whatever. It's still a, um, like you said, vilified or, marginalized group Mm -hmm. but we're meant to care about them as opposed to on the other side of things where it's like and and we're still really worried about them because they're vampires (laughs) like that and and like accept them as people right nextman does a lot says they're people before they're mutants Mm -hmm, and and buffy does says he was oz before he was a werewolf Uh she was willow before she was a witch Mm mm-hmm like, so it, it does that a lot. So, yeah. And one interesting part is that the whole episode kind of goes on this crux where in the beginning, Riley and Buffy are walking and he finds out, he says like, wait, Oz was a werewolf mm-hmm. and Willow dated. Like I didn't, and you mentioned this earlier, Kim, you said, uh, I didn't know Willow was that type of girl. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when and he says like, to Buffy, the famous yeah. monster fucker. Right. <laughs> no, no, so no. He sorry. didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Right, look, well, I'm here to defend Riley today. <laughs> and so Buffy's kind of like, Buffy comes back and she quotes, I'm going to quote her. She says, um, Oz is not dangerous. Something happened to him that is not his fault. Mm-hmm. And then she looks at him and says, I didn't know you were such a bigot and mm-hmm. leaves. Which is hilarious because the whole season, Xander keeps calling him Teutonic, as in like, yeah. this man looks like he should be in the SS, which he basically, he's in like the tall, the initiative. buff, blonde yeah. man who yeah. is also a military Yeah, rounding up demons. Guy. Yeah. Look, we're Lord not loves. getting into Riley right now, okay? This is making me as a Riley fan look really bad. <laughs> is it? That's so shocking. Yeah. Um, it would make you look bad so, to like Riley, huh? So they, the writing, the writing in the episode, like you mentioned, is shaky. But something interesting is they plant this idea, this conversation in the beginning, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Buffy can say, "Hey, you're a bigot because you won't accept this thing," mm-hmm. and then Buffy herself goes through the episode and learns about 
um, Tara and Willow or Willow having feelings for Tara. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, Riley, after he almost shot and killed um, Oz, Oz yeah. and then realized he, cause, cause it was a werewolf and then Oz turned back into a person and Riley said, wait, that's my friend. We need to let him go. And then he helps him like sneak him out of a facility. Right. Mm-hmm. So Riley has this whole change of heart at the same time that Buffy is learning about Tara mm-hmm. and Willow's feelings for Tara. And mm-hmm. so at the end, Riley sits down. And he says, you know, you're right. I was wrong. I was wrong about Oz. He says, I was a bigot. Yeah. He says, you're right. I was a bigot. Which and... actually a awoke king. Yes. yes. And Buffy immediately undercuts him because <laughs> this is Joss Whedon we're talking about. Yes. But she yeah. says, so, you please. weren't a bigot. And it's like, well, he said he was. Maybe just let him go with it. Yeah, just let him be. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, so he says that. And then this is right after the scene where Buffy and Willow were talking and Willow was like, shrugging and talking about Tara and Buffy was like oh oh she's not just a friend she's a friend mm-hmm. and then she like started to realize it and has a little moment and then is trying mm-hmm. to be all cool and it's not and so and it's not doesn't handle it very yeah, well yeah bit of a not, surprise she didn't handle so, it well uh Buffy's talking to Riley after that scene almost right after mm-hmm. and Riley says I was a bigot I was wrong and Buffy says no you had a moment you learned that uh Willow was in a unconventional relationship joss pops out from stage right like wink (laughs) um it says unconventional relationship yeah unconventional relationship and it gave you a quote momentary wiggins which is great writing and then buffy said or uh, riley responds says yeah but i was thinking black and white and he says people versus monsters it ain't like that especially when it comes to love did he say it ain't like that Ain't like that. He's is a he good a farm is boy he from a... Iowa, Kim. All right. I didn't know he was allowed to say ain't. <laughs> so he's a country boy. The yeah. whole episode, which deals with Riley learning to accept Oz as a person and accept the fact that Willow dated Oz, is paired with on the side, Willow learning or Buffy learning that Willow likes Tara, which is an unconventional relationship. Especially this was 99 or 2000. It was, it was a while ago. Two or something. Yeah, about thousand, I think. Different mm-hmm. environment than we are today. When these yeah. things, this was like big. This was new. This was yeah. not something that was talked about very much. Mm-hmm. And so Josh Whedon builds the same thing up on the side. Yeah. And so they use the monster the whole time because mm-hmm. we have ideas about werewolves being bad. And this mm-hmm. says, hey, werewolves aren't bad. And at some time it mm-hmm. says, by the way, unconventional relationships yeah. mm-hmm. and people who date werewolves are not bad people. Right. And also, so, women loving women. Exactly. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Also. And it's also interesting that thinking about it, like spelled out here, kind of how Buffy also immediately jumps to like Oz and Willow's defense because of her own like traumatic former relationship with a vampire. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of a third level where like, it's also like Buffy working through these kind of multiple levels, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. her like understanding this new thing about Willow, but also like dealing with the like, yeah, the traumatic relationship that she had before. And at the end of that, so she also, but but well, some might say better in some ways than okay. yeah traumatic <laughs> but like at least <laughs> interesting. The point was she was she she ends the episode by telling her new boyfriend uh-huh. I I have to tell these things yeah 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 to tell mm-hmm. you about so there's it works on multiple levels and this is something that I really love about Buffy in the way it kind of is able to shift around these 
these ideas and make them work. You can pull on different threads at different times. It doesn't yeah. always work well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it goes badly, but it's, you know, it allows for a lot of different conversations to come up, as you say, Colton, with the cultural forum. Yeah, she's, awesome. it, it's, it's about her also learning to accept what the relationship she was in and share it with him because mm-hmm. now he has had character growth. She has character growth. And then at the very end, Willow decides to choose Tara over Oz because she's mm, in love with mm-hmm. Tara. She she like shows up and has a candle and they have this moment where they blow out the candle and yeah. it's like yeah <laughs> yeah they do some sexy then, witch shit yeah mm-hmm. uh, and then it says executive produced by Joss Whedon yep <laughs> it, it, that, uh, that's what it cuts to it's Tara's face cut Joss Whedon about too <laughs> but um what I'll say is. I, I came into this episode ready to be like, hey, the episode of Buffy you made me watch was bad and I'm mad about it. But um, it's so good. It's so good. Watching it in the frame of the cultural forum. And then also thank you, Laura, for reminding me that it was like 2002 and it wasn't just like gaze on TV all the time. Um, and it, yeah, it was, and it was, yeah, it was Colton who wrote. Oh, okay. Josh Whedon was like hacking Can't with a machete. Because people were giving him money to be like new and innovative. And this was his way. Like he mm-hmm. was trendy. He was mm-hmm. trying to be. Yeah. But but this was one of the first mm-hmm. primetime queer yeah. relationships mm-hmm. like that, that I know of. Mm-hmm. And then also by presenting it as a, like reading it through the cultural forum, the Newcomb and Hirsch sort of lens, right? I can give um, Buffy a little bit more leeway for her like, yeah. freak out she had a momentary wiggins uh-huh. she right? had a yeah. momentary wiggins it yes. happens yeah and as we much learn. as right now i want to be like how dare you momentarily wig um what that <laughs> does also is create a space for someone who like is not a part or like adjacent to an, a community of queer people right mm-hmm. yep. and so yeah. when they do learn that they're like oh no i don't know what, i mean i'm like i I'm, I'm happy for you but i don't know how to deal with this right now um and so I, I it was probably useful or whatever. I guess it's, a, it's like a useful episode of television. Huh? Um, Let's quote that. <laughs> it was probably useful, useful or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> in circa 2021. Yeah. A. Um, Amazing. So I want to just sort of wrap up, though, thinking about how. So we, we've talked about the way that the monsters allegory has changed mm-hmm. from the like you can do an oppositional reading of Dracula and be like, actually, it's hot. Um, to Yeah, you could read against the grain or you could, um, moving toward this sort of Buffy um, or X-Men, right, type of allegory where we're reading these marginalized groups through these yeah. figures. And at this point, you did at one point say, like, representation matters, right? So what I'm wondering based on like the work that you've done with this, how do you feel about using monsters as allegory for these marginalized groups now? Like I'm wondering if we've gotten to this point of diminishing returns for being like, yeah, that's a gay monster. They're not really gay, but they're a monster, which is gay. Um, You get it? Yeah, they're like winking all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I don't think that it will ever go away. Mm-hmm. I don't think that one, I don't think that stories will ever go away. I don't think the metaphors will ever go away. Mm-hmm. We have people who thousands of years ago did the same thing. They told stories that stood in for something else and meant something else. Mm-hmm. We're just in a space where we tell them so often and so much that now in a postmodern sense, we can look back and 
flip it, right? So we can have mm-hmm. a monster that's traditionally something bad and we can say, look, it's actually good. Mm-hmm. And we should be friends with our monsters. And so I don't know what they're going to do next, but I do think that we will always have these types of stories and we will have something that the group or the culture is afraid of, mm-hmm. whether they, sh- because it's a legitimate fear of something to be afraid of or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then people being able to work through that. So we have like monsters that are standing for, like after 9-11, there was a lot of horror films about like invasions, right? Because mm-hmm. that was a cultural A lot of aliens, mm-hmm. yeah. Aliens and yeah. then also like very racist depictions of Middle East and all those types of things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, bad. But like, w- they'll never go away. Mm-hmm. We will always make stories about something that we are afraid of and we work through it. And sometimes we will learn by making that, that these things that we thought we were supposed to be afraid of are normal and we should treat them with respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have like a no, confirmed answer. We could. No, yeah, that's. It's a cultural like forum, yeah. you know. It's a... <laughs> probably not going to get the answer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there's something to be said for um, the allegorical representation. Yeah. Because representation does matter. And it's like, we, we could just have like, oh, yeah, yeah, all yeah, yeah. regular queer people. And I mean, that is kind of what this show does, where. Buffy does the thing where they're like oh this unconventional relationship you could read this as queer but also the witch is gay now yeah so, they have yeah. the allegory and the thing the allegory represents you mean they have the metaphor, the metaphor and the thing, and the the me- thing that it's a metaphor for, for? <laughs> both yep. um yeah but also I really don't want to let go of like reading Dra- look I'm not going to read Dracula I've never read like the Bram <laughs> I don't want to say Stoker. Bram Stoker's Dracula because that's a Coppola movie um but you know I'm, I'm not going to read that but I do enjoy reading monsters as these like subversive kind of reading monsters as different ways to be instead of yeah just scary and it also like I don't know as like a little teen bisexual I was just like oh gosh Willow's so cool and she's magic and it's like yeah I, I was like I see myself in in the one part but I'm also like she also a witch and I would like to be like that too and she has great skirts <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, she does great skirts so like having that allegory I think adds to the representation in other ways as well so mm-hmm. I think there's that there's well, fun so... play to be had with those subversive mm-hmm. uh allegories for the monstrous as like different yeah monstrous as marginalized Ooh, Ooh. that was sexy look at that alliteration (laughs) oh wow okay wow